Hey folks, welcome to, uh, welcome to Equip. People in here are being silly. Um, we're glad that you've joined us, those that have joined us online and those in the room, welcome. It's great to see you all here. I want to uh, open us in a word of prayer and then I'll introduce our subject for the night. Father, we thank you uh, for uh, today and that we can come uh, this evening with uh, the our family of God here at our church and uh, study the word together and, and think biblically together uh, about uh, this subject, about sin and, and being personally convicted and what the difference between those two things are and how we communicate those things well. Will you, will you help us to think uh, well about those uh, subjects tonight? We pray for those who are on our prayer list. We have... Uh, some in our church, uh, either themselves or, or, or family members, are battling uh, with this uh, with this pandemic, and so we pray God that you would see them through. We pray for those in our church who um, are recently have or will be having surgery soon, and then there's a few more God who are probably close uh, to the end, and so we pray Father that they would finish well and uh, meet you in glory when it is uh, according to your timing. So God, would you be with each of those who can't be with us tonight? Thank you for the opportunity for those to join us online who are able to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So what I wanted to talk about tonight, and we're going to have a pretty good bit of scripture tonight, uh, ending in uh, ending in Romans 14. Really, if we have time, I want us to really look at the whole chapter because this whole chapter is going to help us with something. Um, I think we've become confused. I think this fits within the biblical worldview and within this, you know, topic for these three months. Is I think we've become somewhat confused with the idea of what sin is. And I'm going to come back to varying ways we've become confused with that in just a minute. But we've, we've confused sin and personal conviction. And... The, the church, and this isn't new, we, we've probably always had this problem, but we definitely have this problem now where we become personally convicted over something. We think something's right or wrong. We don't necessarily have a place in the Bible where it is speaking directly to that subject. And so we, we can't go to you know chapter and verse and say, this, this is what the Bible says, but we're just pretty sure we're right. And so because we've become pretty sure we're right, um, we think everyone should agree with us on this topic. And, and that, that really runs the risk of uh, alienating people. I think that's the, the warning we see in Romans 14. Um, we also see it in 1 Corinthians 8, uh, a similar warning about alienating people, causing people to stumble, because for some reason people aren't living up to our personal expectations, either that we would have for ourselves or that we may impose upon, um, upon them. Um, but I also wanted to talk about the subject of, of really getting a good definition for what sin is, what sin isn't, uh, before we move into some of these individual topics of biblical worldview, um, be, because sin has become this nebulous idea, right? In one way, it's what I just talked about. People uh, are wanting to to impose their own opinion, their own, even not just opinion, but their own conviction, a personal conviction on other people. And the church has done that historically. Or um, 
sin can kind of be whatever you want it to be. That, and this is really what we're seeing um, within our pluralistic society now, is that, is that we just have this loosely, really broadly based definition of sin. Um, most often in our culture today, something would, be, they may not even use the term sin, but they would certainly use the word evil if it has some type of negative effect on them or someone they care about, um, right? And you're, you're even seeing in our, in our world people uh, redefine the idea of sin in that as long as it doesn't affect someone else, right? As long as it's, now I'll use worldly terms, as long as it's consenting adults, right? Who's to say? This is what people will say. As long as it's consenting adults, as long as it's somebody making their own choice and living their own life, who are you to say if it's right or wrong, right? So we, we've got all of these factors that are weighing in on what is good and what is evil and really what the Bible says to be true that, that you know, there'll, there'll come a day when, when good will be called evil and evil will be called good. Well, that day's always been around. That, that's not new. And I've tried to say that, you know, as, as, we, as we've talked through some of these cultural, cultural issues that are significant is that, that, you know, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And that's very, very true. Uh, these aren't new problems for the church. They're just, they just look a little different. Um, it's got a new dress on maybe, but it's still the same old, same old problem. And so we, we got how we have to understand that if we're going to approach, um, culture, like we talked about last week, we're going to approach the world and we're going to approach society around us with, uh, and, and engage in conversations about big ticket items, big issues that are in, that are in our world right now. We need to have a clearly defined understanding of why this matters. Why does, why does a subject like abortion or a subject like biblical sexuality or a subject like gender, why, why do those things even matter? Um, and are they just something that I've made up in my own mind as being important and I'm convicted of, or is that something that the Bible has clearly spoken to and that we all need to be convicted of and the Bible has clearly said is against the moral law of God? So before you know, before we transition into those and next week's when we're going to start taking some of those specific subjects, I just thought laying kind of a baseline tonight of here's what sin is and then transitioning into um, how we should deal with personal convictions and how personal convictions are important, but don't necessarily rise to the level of, of moral law and, and how we deal with one another on those. And then also how we deal with culture and people outside of culture with, with that, I think, I think is important. So that that's our subject tonight. So I want to start with sin. Just like, what is it? Because you, you may be grown up in church your entire life and nobody's ever actually given you a real clear definition of the term sin. You've heard it. Even if you've never, you know, not been around church a whole, a, for a whole long time, you've heard people use the term sin. Um, and you've probably developed your own personal understanding of what that word means. And maybe you have a you know, a Bible verse to go with it, but you'll probably hard press to find a Bible verse to go with it that doesn't actually have the word sin in it, right? So, so 
Like if, if you were to just press me really quick on what is sin, I would go to Romans 3.23 and say, well, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, it's got the word sin in it, so that first part can't be the definition. The second part's helpful, right? Falling short of the glory of God, meaning that at least speaks to a standard that God has set. Uh, but let's kind of work off a de- definition of sin. This is an easy one. Those of you that have done the doctrine of man with me in our um, Bible doctrines class, this definition is going to be familiar to you because we use it in that class as well. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. That's Wayne Grudem's definition from his Bible doctrine book. And I think that's helpful for us because it recognizes what Romans 3.23 recognizes, that for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, and the glory of God is a standard But there are different ways that we fall short. There are different ways that we fail in his definition, fail to conform to that standard. John writes in 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, right? So if you want a a real succinct biblical definition, there it is from uh, the apostle John Sin is lawlessness. Well, what is lawlessness? John certainly is not thinking about the Old Testament law as, as, it, is, um, as it would have been understood by a first century Jewish person. John, freed from that, embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ, recognizes that lawlessness is greater than just the Old Testament law, that law is what God himself has established to be right, and that to sin is to break that to fail to conform. And then Grudem says there are three ways that we fail to conform. We fail to conform in act, in attitude, and in nature. So the the first one is the low-hanging fruit. It's the easy one, right? That you and I sin most often when we think of our sin, we think of something that we've done wrong. When we think of the sin of someone else, we think of something like a physical act that that person has committed. Most often when we give examples of sin, we, we, we start there because those things are easy. It's easy to look and say, that person murdered someone. That was against the moral law of God in act, right? Their action was against that, which God had said uh, was right. So either God said, don't do it, or God said, do it. And you did what God said not to do, or you didn't do what God said to do. So, so it's, it's, an, it's an action, and action does matter. It matters that we, we do need to recognize that there are some things that the Bible has clearly spoken on and said, don't do these things, like murder, like steal, like commit adultery. Right? The Bible has said, don't do these things. And to do one of those things is an act of sin. It is an act that fails to conform to the moral law of God. But the, the other side of that is also true, that there are some things that the Bible told us to do, like love your neighbor, like love one another, right? There are things that, that, um, that you know, um, serve the Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That these are things, that, but these are affirmative Uh, actions that the Bible has told us to do. And when we act, when we fail to conform to even those affirmatives, not the negative ones, you know, those are the easy ones, but when we fail to conform to the affirmative ones, when I fail to love someone, 
that's just as much of a sin, right? That's even, even, and not just a, a sin of, of attitude or nature, but that's an, that's an act. Like I have, I have chosen to act unloving towards somebody that the Bible has told me to love. So act can be both a, a disobedience to a direct command to not do something and a disobedience to a direct command in scripture to do something. But those are the easy ones. Those are the ones because we see them with our eyes, we experience them ourselves, we, we look at somebody else and we recognize it and we go, okay, I, I understand why that's sin. But in Grudem's definition, he provides two other ways that we fail to conform to the moral law of God. And the other one, the second one is an attitude. And we often don't want to think that our thoughts can be sinful, but they certainly can be, right? Like this is... This is uh, kind of that next step in growing in our understanding of right and wrong and sin is it's not always about what you do, but it's often about what you're thinking while you're doing it or, or about your motive behind why you're doing it. And some of the 10 commandments, I mean, this is again, 10 commandments, the easy place to go for us to think about some of these things, like do not murder, right? That's an act. Do not steal. That's an act. But you know, do not covet. Covet is not an act, Right? Covetousness is an attitude. It's looking at something that someone else has and wanting it. Now, you may say, wait, is it, is, it all, is it always wrong to look at something that I don't have and want it? Well, no, it's not wrong to look at something and say, oh, that would be nice to have. But to covet something is to, is to desire that thing over what God would want for you. You say, I wouldn't care if God would want me to have that thing or not. I want to have it, so I'm going to, right? Oftentimes, these attitudes lead to action, but they don't always lead to action. And then when we think about how Jesus addressed the law in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus took some of those act um, commands, like you've heard it said, do not murder. And Jesus says, but I tell you that if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery already, right? So Jesus really is challenging in that kingdom ethic sermon of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is challenging his followers to have a deeper understanding of sin and recognizing that sin is far more pervasive than just what you do on the outside. Now, that's important in the life of the ministry of Jesus because the Jewish people had become consumed with all of this minutia of the law that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious elite had heaped upon their shoulders. And Jesus even looks at him and says, you, you know, all you are is a burden to people. You don't even lift a finger to help them out from under it, right? And so they had been burdened with all of this and they were so concerned with every little thing that they did that they failed to take into account what was actually going on in their minds when they did it. So it was all right to hate your brother as long as you didn't actually kill him. Right? It, was, it was all right to covet as long as you didn't steal. And Jesus starts to correct that for us. And that's important for us too. It, sin can't only be about those things that you do or don't do, although they certainly are, but they're also about what's happening in your mind when those things are going on. That we should want to do something about the attitudes that we have. Now, here's the thing. An attitude, and th this is why I wanted, one of the reasons I wanted to deal with this today. 
It's easy for our world, you see, somebody may be watching online right now and, and heard me say things like, don't murder is sin, you know, or to murder is sin because the Bible says don't murder. And they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm all for that, right? I completely and totally agree with that. Because again, go back to our, our current culture's understanding of sin is evil things that someone does that affect someone else. But as long as, you're, as long as it's like contained within you, then it doesn't matter. Well, that's not what the scriptures say. The, the scriptures bring us to a place where we have to take every thought captive and ask, is, is this a godly thought or not? So it, doesn't, it, it does matter what you do, but what you do isn't the only thing that matters. So this is certainly a countercultural understanding of the idea of sin then. Because sin and evil isn't just what happens when you act upon something and hurt someone else. Sin is what's going on when you're considering it. Anything that you're doing that is against the moral law of God in your own attitude, in your mind, in the way that you're thinking about things is, is sin and needs to be dealt with. The third part of that definition that Grudem gives is, is nature. And, and we dealt with nature a little bit when we looked at some of the broad stroke pictures of the biblical worldview. And when we said all, all humans are you know, capable of evil, all humans are uh, evil by nature, and, and that's the part of this. Before being redeemed, we, we're all sinful by nature. The very essence of who we are as a, a live, born into a fallen world is that of, uh, of evil. In Ephesians 2 verse 3, Paul writes, Among whom all, uh, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the bodies of our mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That this is, this is we are born with a nature that is against the moral law of God. Now, we weren't created by God that way. Our species, humanity, was created by God uh, with the ability to, to not have that nature, right? With the ability to do good and, and to choose good. Uh, but we then inherit sin, and, and I don't have time to go in, into inherited sin. I'm happy to talk to you afterwards about that, or you could take my doctrine class when we get back to doing those. Because I teach a whole, I, I talk extensively about inherited sin in there. But here's, this is what Paul is affirming here, that, that we're just... We're all doing, and this is what he's dealing with in Ephesians 2, is, is these passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, right? That attitude and of the mind, that's attitude. Um, by nature, children of wrath, that we're just doing what our sin nature is driving us to do. This is what the world does. And before we come to Christ, it's what we do. So if you're outside of Christ, this is just who you are. You are by nature a child of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, Paul says, like the rest of mankind, because he's recognizing that he's writing to Christians. So he's writing about their former state. And, and, and we all need to recognize what our, um, we all need to either recognize our former state or our current state if, if we're outside of Christ. Ultimately, sin is wrong because it's in direct opposition to God who created the universe. And I, I've appealed to this idea a couple of times uh, during, this, during these equip sessions is, you know, this is God's world. We just live in it. And he is the one that determines right and wrong. So when people want to ask that question, well, who are you to say if this is right or if this is wrong? Well, it's not for me to say if it's right or it's wrong, but it is certainly for God to say if something's right or wrong. It, it, is, it is certainly well within his purview, and he has done so, 
to establish within his creation uh, a moral law of, of what is right and what is wrong. And so anything, any act, any attitude, and then ultimately the nature of humanity outside of Christ itself is sinful because it's in direct opposition to what he has established as good. So then where did sin come from? Have you ever had that question? So if that's our definition of sin, like if we're thinking about sin as being this, um, any act, any attitude, or even our nature outside of Christ that is opposite, that fails to conform to the moral law of God, where, where does that even come from? Because God Right, we go back to Genesis two, and there's not sin there. There's, there's, you know, what we're told in Genesis one, a very good creation. If the very good creation includes Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve are in a garden without sin, where, where, where's the origins of of sin? Well, the the first thing we ought to note is God's not the one to blame for the existence of sin. In Deuteronomy thirty two, God's called a rock. And, and he, he's, he's called, he's not a rock, he's called the rock, but it, it, you're supposed to get this picture of this immovable, you know, object. And, and, and we read, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Uh, that, that's saying something very similar to what James affirms in the New Testament, that God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt with evil, that God can do, right, God can do no evil. That evil did not come forth from God. It's not always existed in some, uh, e- you know, Eastern religion or mystic understanding of good and evil, where there's always been this balance between God and Satan, good and evil, yin and yang, dark and light, black and white, however you want to picture it. Like that, that is a common understanding. That's not only a common understanding in some world religions, that's a very common understanding in the way that uh, modern people have kind of embraced the, uh, the idea of good and bad, this dual nature uh, within our world. But that's not the picture the Bible gives us at all. Look, God is not in competition with evil. It's, it's not a competition at all, right? Um, it, it's, it's not as if evil exists as this entity. And yes, we would fully affirm that uh, in our church, that Satan exists, that evil beings exist, that fallen angels, that we have a fallen nature and exist. But there's not this entity of evil like there is an entity of good, which is God. God is good, right? And while, these, while there are created things that do evil, us, there are created things that are dedicated to evil, like Satan and demons, they don't exist in the same way that they counterbalance God. So God created all things good, and then evil enters into that. And evil really is, is the sin, is when God's created world operates outside of his moral law. So I think it's important for us to know God's not surprised by the existence of evil in our world. He's not surprised by sin in our lives. He was not surprised when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. That wasn't a surprise to God. He wasn't surprised when Lucifer rebelled before that. 
He's not surprised when you and I sin within our sin nature. It's not surprised by God. He ordained creation in such a way that sin could exist due to the voluntary action of moral creatures. That the world exists now as God ordained for it to exist. And we, you know, in Ephesians 1, Paul writes, In him we have attained inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You notice all things does not just mean all good things. It just doesn't mean all happy things, you know. It means literally all things. That Adam and Eve falling in the garden was in accordance with the work of, work of God, working out his creation according to his will. Up through today and then to the end of the world. So sin first exists when Lucifer and other fallen angels fall. It's introduced to humanity within the Garden of Eden. And it directly challenged, that first introduction, right, directly challenged the, what God had said to be true, what was true and right, and even to the person of God, that this is what sin and evil does. It is a direct affront to who God is. It's a direct affront to what God has said is right. And those, um, those dedicated to evil are always going to want to attack that. They're always going to want to question God's truth, like the servant does in the garden. Did God really say you would die? Surely you're not actually going to die. Did God really say that this was right and this was wrong? Like, th- this, is what, this is what evil is going to do. But evil is, does, not, does not exist in such a way that it is a counterbalance to the good of God. Evil only exists because, uh, because we, God's creation, have chosen to act against his moral law. But... God created his world knowing that this would happen. So we're not, God's not to blame for it because he's not made us do evil. We're responsible for our evil. We're responsible for our sin. God's not made us to do it. But he has created us in a world where it is ordained by him that this is what we would have. Another important question I think that can be helpful to us particularly as we start addressing worldview, is to think about um, this phrase. And I guarantee, if you've been around church very long, you've heard somebody say this. All sin is equal. You ever heard heard people say that? You've probably said it. I know, I've I've probably said it. Um, That statement is both right and wrong. And... um, I think making that distinction, spending a few minutes talking about that distinction tonight is going to be helpful for us. Because when, if we're going to seek to um, engage culture, like we talked about last week, and do so through a biblical worldview where, where we're changing out these, these you know, our, our current lenses, our cultural lenses for biblical lenses and seeing things the way God wants to see it, we need to recognize um, that in, in one sense, yeah, all sin is, is equal. But in another sense, all sin isn't. And, and we, we, we need to be able to balance that and be able to speak into that uh, from, a, from a biblical perspective. So let's start with how is it all equal? 
So how is the statement, all sin is equal, a true statement? It's true as it relates to legal guilt. That's the first way it's true. It's true in a couple of ways. Um, It's true as it relates to legal guilt. Listen to Romans 5. And the free gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So Paul makes this argument in Romans, like a multi-chapter argument in Romans, that sin enters the world. One sin, you know, brought sin into the created world, into humanity from Adam in the garden, right? Adam and Eve sin in the garden. It's this one sin, and now all humanity is guilty. And then it's an important distinction for us to understand because outside of that understanding, then we can't understand how one act of righteousness on the cross can make the many right, right? If, if, if one man can't represent us in sin, then one man can't represent us in righteousness. That's a really succinct way of saying what Paul's argument is here in the opening sections of, of Romans. But for our purposes tonight, here's, here's what we're focusing on. Judgment followed, how many times did Adam and Eve sin before judgment followed? Just once. It just took once. It, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't a multi-tiered approach. They, they didn't get three strikes, all right? There, weren't, there wasn't a demerit system, you know, or... You know, a chore chart on them, people getting stickers on the fridge for every day they were good, okay? There was one shot at it, and they, 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 they messed up. And judgment ultimately leading to death, right? In that moment, you could say both in that moment, Adam and Eve were, were judged, but in a very real way, Adam and Eve died in that moment. Just like we're dead in our trespasses and sin, Adam and Eve become dead in their trespasses and sin in that moment. They, they experience spiritual death in that moment. Now, not necessarily eternal spiritual death, but they experience the kind of spiritual death we're born into. So, so the legal guilt that is associated with one sin, it doesn't matter what that one sin is. It, it does not matter that when once we have sinned, we have sinned. And it doesn't matter if that's a little white lie. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, a a stolen candy bar. It doesn't matter if we've killed somebody. One is enough to separate from, separate us from God. In James chapter two, we read, for whoever kept the whole law, but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So, this is helpful for us, I think, because we, we live in a world of people that don't often like to think of themselves as being sinful, evil, bad. Most people think of themselves as being generally good, as we talked about our worldviews a few weeks ago and the prevailing worldviews of our world right now. That, that is a dominant worldview in our world, that there is evil, there are bad people, but I'm not one of them, Right? Um, my close friends aren't one of them, my family aren't one of them, that we, we reserve that for, for someone else. So sometimes people have to actually be convinced, yeah, you, you've, you've missed the mark, and to miss the mark once, to, to sin just once, which uh, also helps when we're, when we're thinking about the way um, dominant worldviews around the world approach sin. Because when we think about one of the dominant worldviews that we looked at several weeks ago, is Islam itself, is the, the religion of Islam, right? I mean, this is, um, 
you know, what, there are a billion and a half Muslims in, in the world. I, I think that number's right. It may be close to two billion at this point. And, and here's the, the, dominant, the dominant position of that worldview. I got to do more good than I did bad. Now, that's not it, but that's the dominant understanding. I got to do more good than I did bad. But if you have a right understanding of sin, there is no amount of good we could ever do to offset just one bad. And we may think, well, that's how Muslims think. Well, that's probably how a lot of your family and friends think too. A lot of your family and friends probably think as long as, as, long as my good outweighs my bad, as long as I'm, I'm a generally a good person, I help people, I, um, you know, I give to the poor, I, I, you know, I put money in the red kettle when it comes time, I help my neighbor if he needs help, I don't steal from work, you know, I don't cheat on my wife, I don't do these things. As long as I do those things, that's going to outweigh any bad that I do because occasionally I do some bad things, but you know, one good act plus one. But that's not the way sin works. From, from a legal guilt perspective, one sin is enough. It's done and there is no good that you can pile on top of it to, to make it any better. So, so the, from, from that perspective, the statement of one sin is, um, you know, all sin is equal. Well, okay, in, in that way, sure. Um, then there's kind of a, a, a middle ground one, all right? And that's, that's this idea that when we sin, uh, our rela- our, the relationships in our life and our relationships with God are affected, and our relationship with God, anytime we sin, no matter what that sin is, the relationship that we have with God um, is, is certainly affected. And you, now, recognize this. Th- th- there's no sin for someone in Christ. There's no sin that you can commit that's going to snatch you out of the hand of God. We're promised that, Okay. So, so we, have, we have eternal security. If we're truly saved, then, then we, have, we have that eternal security. But as far as it goes with our relationship with the Lord, that constant walking with him, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that connection of you know, the branch to the vine, these kind of intangible pieces of uh, walking with the Lord and continuing on in sanctification, any little sin will affect that. But... Some sins will affect it more than others. And, and some sins will affect it in, in big ways. And, and Jesus affirms this in, his, in a discussion he's having with the Pharisees uh, that, that some things in the law, some things in the moral law of God are actually more important than others. He looked at the Pharisees and said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And he calls them hypocrites. He says, for you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and, mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So here's what Jesus says, right? He looks at the Pharisees and he's like, you're, you're looking at your dill plant over here and you're making sure you pick off one-tenth of the sprig so you can tithe it, right? And you think you're doing right. And again, it's all about action for the Pharisees. You think you're doing right, but you've neglected what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law, things like justice and mercy and faithfulness, things people can't really see. Now, what's really going to affect someone's walk with the Lord more? Whether they actually picked a tenth of their dill off the plant, or if they're really a kind of person that is focused on justice the way God wants us to be, 
or on love and mercy or on faithfulness the way that God wants us. I would say there's a, that Jesus is absolutely right in saying those matters are more weighty than did I, did I make sure that I got just that little piece of, you know, mint and dill and cumin just right? And Jesus affirms, don't neglect those. Like the, these other things, these things that we do, they're, they're important, but there are certainly weightier matters. So when we start to view our sin, the various sins that affect our lives, whether they're actions or attitudes, um, they, we can see that there are some more that are weighty than others. Some sin affects our relationship with God just in much more detrimental ways. It, when, when we begin to allow certain um, attitudes and even actions to creep into our lives and become um, habits, to become, um, you know, roots, as, as Paul writes about, you know, this root of bitterness, as we, as we allow these roots to take hold of our lives and really affect the way that we interact with one another, the way that we uh, approach God, these things certainly need to be taken serious and all sin again is serious, but some do have a greater effect. Some sin certainly reaps more serious temporal consequences than others. So it's, you know, it's again, it's right to say all sin is equal, but it is certainly wrong to say that all sin is punished equally, at least temporally. I'm going to get to eternally in a minute. But we can all affirm, can't we, that, all, that not all sin is punished equally. And this is, you know, both in a you know, personal way and in, a, and in kind of a corporate societal way. I mean, those of us that have raised children, you don't treat every sin that your kid commits in your house with equal weight, do you? No. You know, some things you correct gently. And, and some things you correct what Christy and I learned years ago in a parenting conference with weapons of mass destruction, right? And, and not every issue calls for weapons of mass destruction, but occasionally it does. It's the best way to fix things. Um, but sometimes just a little gentle reminder. So we recognize that even in our own lives. We also recognize it like, you know, societally, our society may give a, you know, $125 speeding ticket to somebody going 10 over the speed limit, but somebody that kills somebody as a drunk driver is going to go to jail, and, and rightfully they should at least, right? Because one is weightier than, one is weightier than, than the other. And then for lost people, and again, we're talking about sin across the board here. So for people that are still dead in their trespasses and sin, they're still part of that sin nature. Some sins do reap more serious eternal consequences. You know, yes, all people who, who die apart from Christ will be eternally separated from him. We, we affirm in our church um, eternal conscious punishment for sin, all right? Uh, whether you want to call it hell, Hades, lake of fire, or wherever, wherever, whatever word you want to use for it, it is an eternal conscious punishment for sin separated from uh, the goodness of God. But I do believe the Bible affirms that that's going to be worse for some people than others. Jesus says in Luke 12, uh, and that servant, he, he, he's, he's told a parable, and he's kind of wrapping it up, and he said, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, 
Of him much will be required and from him whom they entrust much, they will demand the more. Now, I, I can't speak to what punishment and eternal suffering is going to look like. I don't, that's not what this whole series is about anyway. We could deal with that another time. But I, I do think it's important for us to recognize what Jesus is saying is there's going to be some that suffer in eternity. However this works in the, in the mind and will of God, there are going to be some who suffer in a worse way in eternity than others based off of here, based off of their knowledge in this world. So I've always taken this to mean people who had ready access to the gospel and still rejected it are in some way going to suffer worse than those who never heard. Those who never heard are, if outside of Christ are still going to spend eternity separated from him, but they will but it will be worse for those who had heard. And I think this same principle could apply to certain sins in our world. So if you've ever thought in your mind, you know, there's a special place in hell for people that you know, hurt kids or something like that. that, that I, I think the Bible at least leaves open the room for us to say, that's true. So all sins equal as it relates to our sin, guilt, our legal guilt before God, absolutely. Sins, varying degrees of sin, Outside of our legal guilt, sure, it, it, it varies how it affects our relationship with the Lord. It varies how it re- affects our relationship with one another. It varies how it re- affects, for the lost, eternal consequences possible. So we have to have, if we're going to approach biblical subjects and, and or we're going to approach societal subjects from a biblical point of view, a biblical worldview, we have to do that with a right understanding of what sin is. That sin is failing to conform to what God himself, the creator of the universe, has said is right. Now, there's another area that that needs to be addressed, and this is this area of personal conviction. And here's the risk that we run, and I I think we we run this risk. um, All of us are probably tempted to do this. We're just all tempted to do it differently, right? Right? I'm going to get myself in trouble here. Is it, is it uh, footloose that Kevin Bacon's in the town that they don't let him dance? All right, yeah. See, look at me, getting my movies right. Um, that, that is a, I mean, obviously it's a movie, right? But that's, that's, a, that's a, an example of somebody, right? There's the preacher in the town. He was the bad guy. Um, who, because of loss, because of something that happened, right, um, convinces the whole town that his personal conviction about dancing is the right conviction about it. And they, they take that conviction, moralize it, and then legalize it, right? They legislate it. They legislate the morality in the town that, you know, kids can't, get, kids can't go dancing. It was all a premise for them to be able to dance. Like, that was the whole point of the movie. Um, at least that's, that's my guess. But I think that's kind of an extreme example of this is something that we all run the risk of doing. Kind of being convinced we're right and thinking the Bible tells us that we're right. And so because I'm, I'm, I know I'm right, and, right, because I've convinced myself that I'm right and I've got some Bible to kind of back that up, then I'm going to assume that that relates to everyone. Well, here's the difference between a, a, a sin and a personal conviction. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a, de- let me just give you the definition of personal conviction. And this is mine. I, I just think this is convictions based on biblical principles concerning issues, not directly or indirectly addressed in scripture. So, so we're still basing these things on, on print on biblical principles, 
but, but it's, it's loosely based. They're not either directly or even indirectly based. It's just we're, we're making some assumptions along the way and then applying these things personally. So you say, okay, well, what's then the difference, right? Sin is the moral law of God. Personal conviction is me, my Bible, the Holy Spirit, just I'm going to do this. Our family's going to do this. We're going to think about these things in this way, but you may think about them like this. For something to be a sin, it, it, universally, right? For it to be a sin for me and a sin for you, it needs to have been, a, it needs to have been that way forever, Right? So I've heard people say, for instance, you know, it's a sin to not read your Bible every day. Is that true? Well, what about people that don't have a Bible? Are they sinning every day because they didn't read their Bible? What about people that lived before the printing press? What about people that can't read? Right? Were they sinning because, well, no, they weren't. And there's nowhere in the Bible that tells us you have to Read your Bible. There are things we're supposed to do with the scriptures and to not do them is sin, right? To not meditate on the scriptures, you know, not ponder the scriptures. And you can do that without actually reading the Bible. Although if you have the Bible, it's been entrusted to you. Why wouldn't you read it every day, you know? Uh, But we've got to be careful with those things. So sins are things that are universally applicable. If it's a sin today, it was a sin yesterday. If it's a sin here, it's a sin in Africa. I mean, it's Sins are, sins are these universal things that are failure to comply, to conform to the moral law of God. Personal convictions are, are based off of biblical principles, but, but they're not things that we could say, well, this, was, this is a sin now for everybody now, but maybe it wasn't in another place or, or somewhere else. So then how are we supposed to craft these personal convictions? Because the Bible doesn't tell us everything. The Bible tells us everything we need to know for life and godliness. So don't hear me say that the Bible doesn't tell us everything we need to know. But the Bible doesn't tell us everything. It doesn't address every situation. Movies weren't around when the Bible was written. And so we have to take some next steps to deal with what movies do we watch, what movies do we don't watch, or do we not watch movies at all, right? There are are going to be these principles that we're going to have to craft for ourselves and follow the instructions of Scripture, be convinced in our own hearts of, right? So the first thing we do is that we make sure that everything that we're promoting is promoting what the Bible promotes. That if we're living something, that we're living something that the Bible would want us to live. And this is just based off of basic biblical principles. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's just as true today as it was when the psalmist wrote it 3,000 years ago. All right? Your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. And they may not have lived in a technological age. They may not have lived with all the, some of the things that we have, but it doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't have to address all those things because the Bible is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path. So it's going to guide me into what areas, oh, about how I need to think about these new challenges that aren't necessarily addressed in Scripture. So then we need to allow principles in Scripture and what I'm going to call non-normative texts to guide the way that we think, right? So some things, if you, if you were here when I preached through Proverbs, we, I talked a lot about principles because a lot of what Proverbs is, some of Proverbs is commands, do, don't, but a lot of Proverbs is just guiding principles from a father's heart to a son 
And we, we talked a lot in that sermon series about, about recognizing how these principles then guide other, way, other, thing, other ways that we live, ways that we think, uh, things that we do. Uh, the way that we treat people, we're guided by these principles. And then there's also what, what are known as non-normative texts, right? Non-normative texts are mostly narrative texts in scripture that we're not supposed to draw a one-for-one correlation, right? Uh, so Genesis 26, this, this um, Sunday, probably provides two really good examples. Um, in, in one case, God tells Isaac, don't flee famine to Egypt, right? But we shouldn't take that as normative for everybody in the world to don't flee to Egypt, you know, right? If somebody lives in the Middle East right now and there's a famine and there's not one in Egypt, they could go to Egypt, right? They don't need to turn to Genesis 26. Like, I shouldn't go to Egypt, right? That's a non-normative text. Um, but it gives us a general principle, right? To rely on God and not to. But then there's also, command, there's also like Isaac's sins in there and does what his dad does and calls his wife his sister, right? Well, we could all know that's a command. Don't ever call your wife your sister, <laughs> right? That, that ought to be, you would have thought he would have learned from his dad doing it twice, but he didn't. We'll get more into that Sunday morning. So these are principles, non-normative texts. We allow these things to guide us. So how did God guide these people in the Old Testament, in the book of Acts? How did God guide these people in, in making these decisions? Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5. He says, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That the more you consume the scripture, not only the commands of scripture, but principles presented to us in scripture and stories that are told, narrative texts that are teaching us something, but are also giving illustrations to us. The more we consume those things, the more it becomes like solid food, the author of Hebrews says, the more mature we get. And we, we become better and better at going, this is right, this is wrong. I don't even have to think about it. Like, I, just, I just know, like within my spirit, I just know this is right, this is wrong, because I've, I've grown up in the things of, of God and I don't mean grown up in like I started as a young child, but I mean, we all start at basically zero when we come to faith and then we grow up in our faith. And that's the picture that the author of Hebrews is giving us. Finally, though, and, and this is why I want to, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 14, because we're going to look kind of like the whole chapter in these last 10 minutes. Um, but we, we need to be convinced. You do need to be convinced in your own mind about some of these things. You don't get to say, I think it is a cop-out for Christians to say, well, the Bible doesn't address that subject, so you believe what you want to believe. I don't really have an opinion on it. I, I, don't, I don't think that's what Scripture teaches us to do. I actually think that's the opposite. Um, I even think that may even be a sinful attitude because the Bible gives us specific instructions uh, concerning how to deal with these subjects. But to do so with graciousness towards people that are going to see it differently. And what I can't do is take a personal conviction of mine and impose it, even as pastor of the church, I can't take a personal conviction of mine and impose it as a sin for you. I can help you see why I got to that personal conviction. We can talk about it as in brothers and sisters in Christ and help you see why I got there. But you may get somewhere else and I'm not allowed by scripture to say, well, you're in sin and I'm not. Unless there's actual scripture that says you're in sin and I'm not. So let's look at Romans 14 because Paul deals with this. 
Let's look at verses one through five first. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So Paul recognizes two things off the bat. Number one, inevitably within the church, there are going to be people who are, who are stronger in the faith than others. We're all at a different place in this journey, right? And not only because of that, but partially because of that, there are going to be different understandings of how to deal with matters not specifically directly addressed in Scripture, right? So that's the assumption we need to recognize. Varying levels of maturity and differing opinions, some of it at least based off of those varied levels of maturity. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now stop there for a second. Paul uses two examples. The first is over dietary restrictions. There were people in, in Rome who were eating everything, and Paul says they're free to do it. And Paul actually kind of tilts his hand a little bit, and he's like, these, these guys are right. But he says, if there's somebody that's convinced they should only eat vegetables, they should be a vegetarian, right? It's fine. Now, it's not necessarily a biblically defensible, like, let me say it like this. It's not wrong to be a vegetarian, but it's not really biblically defensible to say, I'm a vegetarian because the Bible has told me to be a vegetarian, Right? So Paul says that there's a stronger argument on one side and the other from the Bible, but does it really matter what you eat versus what they eat? No, it doesn't matter. And so you don't get to look at them and say you're sinning by only eating vegetables, and they don't get to look at you and say you're sinning by only eating, by, by eating meat. And he says, who are you to judge somebody else's servant? Because we're all, none of us are direct, you know, we're all supposed to serve one another, but we're not one another's servants. We're all servants of Christ. So it's Christ who, who judges. Then he turns to another subject, and that's the subject of days, right? And really what he's got in mind here is the Sabbath, okay? He's like some people, he addresses this in, in other books too of the New Testament. Some people think some of these days are really, really important. And we still see this today within, I mean, there are some denominations that are formed around observing the church calendar, right? And then there are some that don't care at all about the church calendar. And Baptists tend to not be church calendar people. So I said church calendar, and there's probably some of you are like, wait, there's such a thing? There is, okay? And some of our brothers and sisters in Christ go to other churches, and, and they're really dogmatic about some of those days. And you're going you're gonna to observe these days, and there's things that they do on those days. Outside of Christmas and Easter, you know, I, we really don't put, put a whole lot of stock into it. Um, and, and they don't get to tell us we're wrong and we don't get to tell them they're wrong. But he says this, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. You need to make up your mind, not just about days and not just about food, right? These are just examples for us. Now go to verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Are you why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, I, I, 
As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess to, to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is why you need to be, able, be convinced in your own heart because you're going to have to give an account. You need to make up your mind what you believe about certain things. You need to be convinced that this is like, I'm doing this because I'm convinced this is what I'm supposed to do. But because I don't have chapter and verse for me to go to and say, you're supposed to do this too. I don't get to look at you and say that. Now keep going. Verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He's going back to the food idea here. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself, for he approves. But whoever has doubt is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does, does, uh, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin." Gets us back to this idea. So listen, your personal convictions, because you've been instructed in Scripture to have them, while they may vary from culture to culture, person to person, family to family, church to church, does lead us, if we, if we are unwilling to listen to those and unwilling to follow those convictions, he, Paul says it's sin because we've been instructed to develop them. But we've been instructed to develop them, but not to force them on anyone and be willing to sacrifice our own. So this is what he says. He's like, listen, if your brother's really super bothered by the fact that you eat meat, how about don't eat meat in front of him? Paul didn't say don't ever eat meat, right? He says it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do whatever that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. So you want to eat it in your own house? Eat it in your own house, right? You don't? Don't. And these, these are just, I mean, I mean you know, go, back to our, go back to our footloose example, right? You, you want to go, you want to, you know, have a wedding and have your reception somewhere other than our fellowship hall and dance? Um, you're free to do that. I, I, I don't care. And my wife may even make me dance at it, right? And somebody else may, may be like, I just, I don't dance. I, there's no one in the Bible tells you not to do that. But that, if that's a personal conviction, if you find, right? So this is what we've got to do. Like, we've, we've got to be humble enough, and this is what Paul's preaching here. Like, be humble enough and concerned about greater things enough to say, I'm willing to sacrifice my own personal conviction. I'm willing to not practice it around people. I'm willing to, and I'm certainly not going to try to force it on someone else. And, and this, is, this is where, listen, this, this is a, it, it, is, it has been an issue in the, in the evangelical church, particularly as, as we get on that spectrum towards the fundamentalist side, it becomes a great issue for us um, because we start going beyond the bounds of scripture and saying, this is right. 
and this is wrong, when really what we're saying is this is right for me, this is wrong for me. Now, some things that are not up for debate, some things are. And it takes biblical spiritual wisdom to be able to discern what those things are. And so as we're dealing with some of these issues over the coming weeks, what you're going to see is some nuance there, even in some of those subjects to say, this is a convinced in your own heart kind of issue, or, or this is, you know, one side of it that is a convinced in your own heart type thing. And this is a black and white in scripture. We all need to line up with this because this is clearly what the Bible has called sin. Uh, and, and we need to, to recognize it as such. So I hope this is helpful for you. Just as we think about how we understand what sin is, the effects of sin, but also how we understand what our own personal convictions are uh, and, and how we can be convinced in our own hearts of that and sit by somebody on, on, you know, in church that has a different conviction and do exactly what he says here in Romans 14 and recognize we're all part of the same church and I don't need to tell you my conviction or force my conviction on you. I'm all up for a, a happy debate over it, right? But, but I, I can't, we're not going to rule that. We're not going to rule one another. The, the strong's not going to rule the weak. And that's what uh, Paul, was, Paul was worried about there. And he's also worried about the strong sacrificing their freedom for the, sake of a, for the sake of a weaker brother, which I think is also a good encouragement. And that's all the time that I had. So let me pray for you and we'll be done for the evening. God, would you help us to know uh, sin in our lives? Would you show us places where we still fail to conform to the moral law of God? in our thoughts, and our actions, our attitudes, the way we treat one another, the way we treat the world around us. Um, let us be people that give uh, attention to the weighty things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Let us not just be mint and dill pickers. Father, also help us in our own convictions to be convinced in our own minds of what we believe is right, um, but to not force that on a weaker brother or sister or even on a stronger one who... Um, who may see it differently in, in, a, in, a, in an area that the Bible has left open to that personal conviction. Uh, let us rightly divide the word so we can be good discerners of good and evil, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for the, joining us uh, online. Look forward to seeing you back next week. Thank you guys for being here in the room.